children love when I went medicine. God children die for me. Boom, five, eight. God children love when I went medicine. God children die for me. Boom, five, eight. God children love Children love God children love Children love God children love Boom, five, God chose a when I went medicine. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a when I went medicine. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a chose a God chose a chose a God chose a Boom, five, eight. First John chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. False prophets, false teachers, false shepherds. Uh, all, it's all this crazy talk. It's, if you guys um, don't understand how serious this chapter is, especially for the day and time that we live in, um, man, you've, you've not seen the, the church the way I have. There are so many, um, I wouldn't say, people who are intentionally like, wolves in sheep's clothing. There are those. There are people who are walking around deceiving intentionally, um, operating by a false spirit, a demonic spirit. Um, and then there are those all across the world who are, you know, I guess you might say they're sitting in pulpits, standing in pulpits, they're preaching, they're teaching as a shepherd, and they're assuming a role of teacher, and they're operating according to a spirit of deception that the church is, that they're teaching is unaware of. Um, there's all kinds of categories. I, I think there's, there's so many ways I want to address this because John's about to jump into, hey, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. There are many false prophets. There's spirit of antichrist. There's false teachers and false shepherds and people who are speaking like they're talking from God, but they're not from him. And they're assuming a role and a position God hasn't given them. And they're assuming authority God hasn't given them. And they're saying things that God doesn't validate. And people are being deceived. There are people like that all across the planet right now who are church leaders. And then you have, because of that, you have heresy hunting ministries that get formed. You have these sin-seeking missile ministries where it's all about finding the wrong in the church, exposing that in a very rude, aggressive, demeaning way where it's not the spirit of love, not the spirit of holiness and truth. It's you're operating by the spirit of the world just as much as the people you're exposing. And so on the spectrum of false prophets, false teachers, false shepherds, you know, those who proclaim to be from God and they're not, there's all these different categories that we could be addressing. I'm just going to let John say what John's going to say. He's going to talk about false prophets. And I think, I don't know. There are two extremes here that I've seen. There are people who are not discerning and they, they open themselves up to whoever and they listen to whoever as long as they're from God. They say they're from God, 
right? And they listen to anyone who proclaims to be a pastor or a shepherd or a teacher. And there's no discernment. They're not thinking through what they're saying. They're mindlessly receiving anything that the man of God or woman of God is saying. And that's probably something we should avoid. The other extreme is where people are too quick to label other people as false prophet, as heretic, as reprobate, as false teacher. And they're calling a true, genuine child of God who is just in that moment, maybe they misinterpreted a text, right? And they came to a wrong conclusion. And they're just soundbiting and clipping everything they can find on the internet to expose anyone and every single shepherd or teacher that's on the planet because apparently no one can be trusted. And then you have ministries form out of this supposed, well, we're, we're discerning. I'm helping people recognize false teachers and false shepherds. No, bro, like you are just on the hunt for anything wrong you can find in the world. You don't share. You don't look for anything good. You're not at all examining the good that these good shepherds are teaching. You only soundbite the, the three seconds where you disagree with what they said and you and then you build something around that where you go, see, they're a heretic, they're a reprobate, they're a false prophet. And I, I, I just want to us to take a step back and I really want us to be honest before we jump in this text. Which camp do you find yourself in? Are you someone who hyper-focuses on the bad in the church and the wrong and you're just you're looking for everything evil and and everything that might be creeping around in the shadows and you're you take every pastor every shepherd every teacher that has any kind of platform and you just want to soundbite and clip out and look for anything wrong they might say and then you build something around that and you're you're mistrusting and and you're almost like this hey the spirit of god will lead me into the truth but no one else will ever show me the truth because no one else can be trusted. If you're in that camp, listen up. If you're in the other camp, which says, hey, I'm open to anyone and anything that is said in the name of God, and I don't think critically, and I don't reason, and I don't weigh what people say, and I don't discern through, and I just trust anything that is said by someone who claims to be a man or woman of God, and you're not thoughtful, and you don't weigh what they say, and you just mindlessly receive, this is also for you. So there's two camps I'm trying to address without really trying to hammer one at the expense of another. I want to be honest and say, when John says, look, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, that there are two camps. And of course, within those two extremes, you'll find all these different subcategories. Absolutely. But he does say, do not believe every spirit. Now, he'll explain a little more what he means by spirit. I don't think John is just talking about uh, those supernatural spiritual experiences that we have uh, at any time throughout our life. We should weigh those. We should examine and, 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 and really discern through certain experiences we have that are supernatural in nature or spiritual in nature. Right, we should discern through that and go, hmm, based on what's happening and based on uh, my understanding of who God is, is this spirit that is behind this experience, is this most likely from God or not? Don't believe every spirit. I think John will address that, and, and that's also in mind, but mainly there is a spirit, a way of thinking, you might say, a philosophy, a worldview, an ideology that is behind every single uh, sermon you hear, every, every message you hear, 
Every advertisement you see, every little jingle that gets, you know, caught in your mind and you're like, I can't get it on my head. Like there is actually a spirit, an intentional driving force, you might say, a direction that someone wants to take you behind everything you hear, listen to, uh, watch, experience. And we need to weigh that in general. Okay. But I believe John is, has in mind mainly those who are assuming a role of teacher coming as a prophet, a man of God, a teacher, a shepherd, what spirit are they operating in? What they're saying, what spirit is it sourced in? Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And then there are people who take this so far, again, that they build their life on um, hyper-critiquing, and overanalyzing every statement that is ever said by any man of God or any woman of God. And they go, well, John tells us to test the spirits. He doesn't say obsess over every single, you know, word that is said by every person on the planet to the point where you only expose that clip and that soundbite and you build a ministry around it where your caption and your subtitle and your thumbnail says exposing this famous preacher say really that's your heart is just to expose people no i'm exposing the evil but it's at the expense of the truth you're ignoring the truth they are saying these you know there's, there's a there's a way to okay i'm done beloved don't believe every spirit test the spirits to see whether they're from god so what are we testing is the spirit that is behind what i'm hearing is it from god or not I don't need to know where it comes from if I know it's not from God because the only other option is that it's not good. It's either from God and it's good. It's his spirit, spirit of truth, spirit of righteousness, spirit of love. Or it's another spirit that I want to have nothing to do with. So when you and I hear a message, sermon, a prophetic word, a song, we really need to weigh and test the spirit uh, that is behind that. I'm not talking, when I say spirit, y'all think unclean spirit, demonic spirits, those floating immaterial beings that are spiritual in nature. I, there might be potentially something like that behind some things, but not always. I think when he says spirit here, um, let me look it up real quick. Give me one sec. I want to actually pull the Greek word he's using so no one can say I did not do this. And he says the word spirit. And I think I wrote this down somewhere. I just forgot. Test the spirits. Can be used as wind, breath, spirit. The most frequent meaning or translation of pneuma is the spirit. Um, rhetorically possible. Um can refer to the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to give a more like helpful in this context. That's pretty much what they give us. Wind, breath, spirit. See, even that's not helpful in the English because spirit can mean a number of things for a number of people. Okay, either way, I think we'll make sense of what he's saying as we keep reading <laughs> for many false prophets have gone out into the world so i think whatever spirit he has in mind 
He's connecting to the false prophets that have gone out into the world. There are spirits behind false prophets. And then there's, there's the spirit of God that actually drives the true people of God who are teaching the word of God. So there's a, you might say there's a way of, again, I think it's more appropriate to not think of either an unclean, evil, demonic spirit, or is it the Holy Spirit? Those are categories for sure. But I think the word spirit here is just what's helpful for, for me, at least when I'm reading this, is to think of that way of thinking and the world view, the view of God that is driving a person and driving what they're saying, even if they claim to be talking in the name of God. So test the spirits, whether they're from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says for or because. So you and I go, well, shouldn't I, um, I don't know. Once I find like a good, solid biblical church and they're solid, they're preaching the word of God every week. Uh, should I just shut my discernment off because they have such a good track record of proclaiming the truth? And I would say, absolutely not. I'm prone to error. Everyone is prone to error. Everyone is going to make a mistake at some point, misinterpret a text, read something into it. it. It's our job as the church to test the spirits. And this is not just, I know I'm like making this more about evaluating sermon, evaluating truth and what's being said. John does have in mind the driving force or worldview or ideology driving a person and what they're saying for sure. But also I, as a believer, um, I can, I can preach a sermon for an hour and I can say like 90% truth. Like I, I, I accurately exposit the scriptures. I say what's true. And then maybe at some point, like 34 minutes in, I say something that is from like my flesh and it's not necessarily an error, but it's not helpful. Maybe in that moment, I'm not operating in the spirit of God, but I'm operating in the spirit of the world. Maybe I see a, a comment in the, in the chat that really gets me mad. And I respond in a way that isn't loving or according to the spirit of God. I operate in that moment in a spirit of anger or bitterness or, or you know, self-defense. And therefore, what I say isn't, isn't honorable to God, maybe, or maybe the spirit that's, that's behind what I'm saying. So I'm not thinking clearly today. Second Peter two, let's go here. Cause what he does say is this, he says, look, don't believe every spirit. And we're like, yes, we get it. Test the spirits. You're like, yes, we get it. How do you do that though? How do you determine whether it, someone is really sent from God or speaking according to the truth of God or even operating in the spirit of God? How do you weigh that? You can tell me to test that. I need, a, I need a gauge. I need a metric. Show me how to measure that to determine whether someone is operating in the spirit of God or not. He does say, here's why though. Before he gets into the how, here's the why. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, which makes it seem like there are many people who claim to be prophets, who speak authoritatively, who say like God is behind what I'm saying. And in fact, they're not from God. They're operating in a spirit or a way of thinking, an ideology, a view of God that is not actually sourced in the truth of God. Uh, let me take you to Second Peter 1. Same, not Second Peter 2. Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1.19, uh, this is what Peter says. I think First John 4 and, and Second Peter have great correlation. Good parallel passages. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What prophetic word? Well, 
It seems to be linked to the voice that came from heaven when Jesus was baptized. That said, this is my beloved son. Or, or the very voice that Peter, James, and John heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, which I think is mainly in mind here. Yeah, on the Holy Mountain. That's what Peter has in mind. He was on the Mount with Jesus. Saw the cloud come and a voice from the cloud say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Peter's saying we have the prophetic word. I think the prophetic word in scripture declaring the Messiah, which is confirmed by Jesus. And ultimately the gospel, which the Old Testament points to and hints at and presents to us in seed form. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. How? Well, by the voice that came from heaven at the baptism of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, the, the word that Jesus was proclaiming and saying, look, I... I'm coming to fulfill the Old Testament. There's my daughter. I'm coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, okay? That prophetic word, both in the Old Testament and what Jesus was proclaiming, was confirmed by God himself, to which you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention to the prophetic word, which has been confirmed, which we see in Hebrews. My daughter's... My wife ain't having it today, I'll tell you that. Hebrews 1. This is what it means that the word of God was confirmed. Um... Can't step in and help. I can't help her. My wife's just got to handle it. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Okay, so you might say the greatest prophetic word is Jesus. He is the Word of God, He's the fulfillment of law and prophets. If you go down, um, is it in chapter 1? Pretty sure it is. Ah, uh, yeah. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, which is what Jesus declared, the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression uh, or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness, so here's how God witnesses to the prophetic word, of his son and the Old Testament revelation of the coming Messiah and the gospel, which was hidden. Here's how God bears witness, by signs, by wonders, by, by miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So when Peter says, hey, pay very close attention to the prophetic word that God has already confirmed, that starts to give us an idea of how to discern through false prophets or those who might be like a true, genuine child of God, but maybe they say something wrong. How do we discern through error and truth? At the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We don't need to get caught up in the whole spirit and the whole madness of, well, is it an unclean spirit? Is it a demonic spirit? Is it a principality? Is it a governing spirit? But the point is, there's truth and there's error. There's light and there's darkness. How do you discern between the two? And Peter says, well, what's been confirmed by God, the gospel, which Hebrews says, signs, wonders, miracles, all that, Pay attention to that. Like you would pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. Like if you're in a dark place, you're paying very close attention to the small amount of light that you have to guide you around in the darkness, to help you navigate the darkness. That's what the prophetic word of the gospel, which is concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New, that's what should guide our life and drive our discernment and give us the the wisdom that helps us properly discern through truth and error is what this person is saying. Does it align with the truth of the gospel? Does it align with the prophetic word God has already confirmed by his son 
and by signs and wonders and gifts and miracles and, and the resurrection and the prophetic word in the Old Testament, do we see this person in the pulpit saying something that violates the gospel and contradicts it or, or confirms it and is aligned with it? I think that's the first filter we use. Not the only, but the main first filter. Is that there is a prophetic word God has already confirmed. And so let's just pay attention to that and weigh everything against that. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all. Okay. First of all, know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Which there's, I think there's a, this is a multi-dimensional statement. There's a lot of meaning behind it. Number one, I don't get to decide what the word of God means. I get to discover what God intended for it to mean. God has the meaning already there. I just discover it. That's it. I don't get to decide, you know what? God's word is saying this because I decide it does. Too bad, buddy. You didn't write the scriptures. God led his people by his spirit, moved them to write what they wrote. Okay, not robotically, where they just obsessed. Oh, oh yes, I'm writing this without even thinking about it. Oh, what happened? That's not how it works. But God works through people, fills them with his spirit, guides them under the influence of his presence and his spirit to write down what he means and what they intend to mean. So there's already meaning. There's already an intended interpretation. I just discover that. I don't decide that. The problem is, you have a lot of pastors, preachers, teachers, prophets, whatever you want to call them, who are coming to the people of God and saying what they want to say about the word of God rather than what God says. In other words, they're deciding, this is what I want it to mean. This is what I want it to mean because it fits my narrative and it fits my sermon outline and it fits the main point that I want to convey today. So I'm going to fit this scripture into my presupposed ideas instead of pulling an idea out of the text that's already there. I'm shoving an idea into the text of scripture that isn't there. And so, yes, there is one main interpretation and meaning. And you might say like one main point that has deep, deep, deep layers to discover. Okay. I'm not saying the word of God is the shallow thing where you read it once and you get it completely. And there's nothing more to learn. The word of God is like bottomless fries, endless, right? So there's, you can come to a text that you've been reading for years, 30 years down the road, open up second Samuel and you're like, Oh my gosh, I never saw this because the word of God is, um, so deep. <laughs> you might say there's, um, I would go so far as to say God is, well, we know this God is incomprehensible. Therefore, I believe the revelation of God is not something I can ever perfectly master. You have people who just want to master Jesus. They're not interested in knowing Jesus. They're interested in mastering the scriptures and mastering Jesus in a way where he fits into their agenda, right? And now Jesus is something that I employ to build whatever empire I'm building rather than um, following Jesus into the truth, building his church, loving people. So uh, the, the point is that the word of God is bottomless. And yes, there's, God has the intended meaning already laced within his narrative. We just discover that progressively throughout our life. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So this is also what Peter means when he says, look, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
not only do I not decide what the word of God is saying, I discover it. But also, no prophet led by the spirit of God just decided of their own initiative without the influence of God. You know what? It's a Sunday. I'm the prophet Jeremiah. I just feel like I want to write down something that is going to be the divine authoritative word of God. I'm deciding by myself without the influence of God and his spirit. I'm deciding on my own initiative that I'm going to write something and stamp God's authority onto it. No. Yes, people did use their mind and God used their personality and God. And you see this all throughout the different genres of scripture. No prophet or, or prophecy was ever just produced by the will of man. That doesn't mean that the will of the person was not employed in the actual writing of the scripture. God didn't violate the will of his biblical authors when they wrote down scripture. They worked alongside him. They partnered with him, but they were carried along. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirit. So there, there's two views, right? That we should avoid. One view says, you know what? The biblical authors mindlessly wrote down what God told them to. They didn't think about it. They didn't reason through it. They just downloaded it and they were just like robots just going, yes, A, B, this is what the Lord says. And then they, they poof. It's almost like they, they blacked out for a minute and they look on the parchment or whatever they're writing on. They're going, hey, look at that. I think I wrote the word of God. That's not how it actually happened. The other extreme is to hyperemphasize the, the, uh, the the part of the person where we say yeah this is just a human book and humans ultimately are the source of this truth and this whole narrative originated in the mind of a, a, a bunch of humans that's not true everything we see in scripture is sourced in god but he partnered with humanity and revealed truth to his prophets and carried them along by his spirit to write down the authoritative divine word of God that we know of as scripture. So it's not God's work to the neglect of human free will. It's God working with human free will, but those people are led by the spirit. They're not mindlessly controlled and becoming zombie f zombies by the spirit, but they are led by the spirit. They're under the influence and leading of the spirit and God works with the person. So that's what Peter means. So, so when you, when you hear preaching, teaching, prophecy, that is just, it sounds like someone's own interpretation, meaning they're just like, you know what? Forget discovering what God wants. I'm going to decide this is what it's saying. Let me tell you something that God didn't tell me but I'm going to say it as if he did. This is what happens a lot. When someone comes up, I'm a prophet of God. You might want to listen to me. Thus saith the Lord. You could legitimately be a prophet. You could legitimately be speaking by the spirit of God. But the only way I can start to figure that out and see if you really are talking from God is to have a knowledge of the truth myself so that I can weigh and discern through what you're saying and really come to a good biblical conclusion about what you're saying. So do you have 
the knowledge of God's word enough to actually discern through what people are saying uh, in the name of God? Do you have that discernment? Do you have at least somewhat of a knowledge to accurately pinpoint? Yeah, I don't know, buddy. You claim to be a prophet, but what you said like violates the character of God. It's not consistent with the gospel. That flies in the face of what I believe Scripture communicates God to be. And I don't know, man. This is why we'll see this in a minute. I'm not saying despise prophecy. I'm saying test and weigh whatever kind of prophetic word someone is claiming to give you. If it's a personal prophetic word, it's a, if it's a teaching from scripture, if it's a personalized word that's kind of mixed in with scripture, if it's a shepherd or a teacher or a preacher proclaiming God's word, we should never despise, but we should weigh, we should test, we should test. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians will say, do not quench the spirit. Do not. What does he mean? Well, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Right? So there are two extremes once again. You can either test nothing. That's one extreme we should avoid. Or you can be so hyper-focused on evaluating and... Oh, let me say this. Or the other extreme is that you despise prophecy because you're so afraid to be led astray that you never open up the possibility for God to be speaking in any other means except the open Bible. And this is where I think a lot of us will be... You're going to really figure out my view of Scripture and what I believe God is still doing these days. I'm definitely not a cessationist. I do believe the gifts of have continued, okay? Conversation for another day. Because of that, not only do I see this in Scripture, but I see this in all experience and in the world around me. So I have the witness of Scripture and life experience. I don't believe God only talks, if I can find. I don't believe there's only one way God speaks, and it's only when you open the Bible. I believe Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the main and final prophetic word and revelation of the Father. And yes, we have the canon of Scripture. And yes, this is the main way God communicates to us uh, His unchanging truth and His character and His gospel and His Son. And I believe this is the main way God speaks. But that's not the only way. Meaning, God can and does speak to his children in a plethora of different ways, but it's always going to be consistent with the word of God. And I know that people get afraid of this because they think maybe they've had church hurt. Maybe they grew up in hyper charismatic churches. Maybe they think the gifts have ceased. And so they're afraid of being, they're so afraid of being led astray that they're not open to God speaking in any other capacity except the written word narrative of Scripture. And I, and I would just like someone to show me where in the actual word of God it says God only speaks in this capacity. I will say everything else God will say in my life 
through people, uh, through songs I hear. If God is teaching me something through a show I'm watching, as crazy as that sounds, if God's teaching me through a book that was written by a biblical, by a, by a Christian author, it's not authoritative divine scripture, right? I understand that people are afraid that this can be so loose that we no longer have um, standards and we no longer have a filter and we no longer have, um, I don't know, I know it gets wacky. I know people can be afraid that it gets wacky. When you start to go, well, God can and does speak outside of the written word, but it's always going to be consistent with this. This is the main way, not the only way God speaks. And I know people are afraid of that, and that's fine. That's fine. Or their, their theology says, you know what? I believe God has spoken one way and one way only. That's fine. You, you can go and live like that. I'm nothing against you. I'm just saying, Peter says, don't despise prophecies or Paul, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. I've had prophetic words from people I've never met. And they just came up to me. I've had prophetic words from people who didn't even know they were giving a prophetic word, meaning a, a prophecy, not prophecy in terms of like, Something's going to happen in your future, but something that rings true to my life. It's like they read me like an open book and God was leading them to do that. I've had, I've learned so much and I, I know I get it. People just, this is not for everyone. I have had deeper revelations of God's word come through the most ordinary moments of my life. Or I'm just having conversation with someone, another believer. Or I'm watching a show with someone and we're discerning through what's being said. And I go, oh my gosh, that really, uh, that really helps me understand Genesis 3 in a way I've never considered. Uh, or when I hear a worship song and it solidifies a truth I already knew, which is maybe God is holy. But this song is driving it home in such a real way. And God is speaking through that and solidifying that truth in a way that is just changing my life. So Peter, Paul does say, don't quench the spirit. And I think not the only way to quench the spirit, but the main way, at least in this context, that you and I could potentially quench the spirit is by not testing everything and being loose and open and out of control and saying, God speaks to me all the time. Every thought I have is God. No. Every desire I have is from God. No. Everything that people tell me in the name of God is really coming from God. No, not at all. Test everything. I think when you don't test what you are believing is potentially a word of God, if you don't weigh that with scripture, you are indirectly quenching the work of the spirit because you might end up operating in a different spirit and acting on a word God didn't give because you didn't discern through it. You didn't think through it. There's another way to quench the spirit, which mostly in this context, seems to be desiring prophecy. When you, or despising prophecy, not desiring. When you despise prophecy, and you're not open to God speaking in any other capacity but the written word, which essentially you're saying, God is only talking to me during that small window of time I give to him each day. Let's say you give God an hour in the word. You're saying, well, God only talks to me for that hour. The rest of the day, nothing. Or some of you go, no, I'm saying you can meditate on scripture. And as I do, God's speaking to me. Then I go, well, aren't you kind of wandering into the territory that I'm saying God 
speaks in this capacity and, and you're kind of seeming to kind of move that direction, whether you admit it or not, don't despise prophecy. But that doesn't mean you believe everything that presents itself as a word from God. Does that make sense? Not every emotion, idea, thought, desire you have is from God. Not every idea and word that people gives you is from God. But be open to the possibility that it is. How do you do that? Well, you weigh it. You discern. You know the voice of your shepherd. You know the heart of God. So that you can recognize his voice in all the other ordinary mundane moments of life where you think God's not speaking here, but he is. You just don't recognize his voice yet because you haven't become familiar enough with his voice in scripture. So don't despise prophecies. And the prophetic word again is always going to be aligned with the word of God. And I know that when I, when I say despise prophecy, people think, oh, so you think like anyone can run around and uh, suddenly if someone gives a prophetic word, that means they have the authority to start putting pen to paper and that can be the authoritative scripture. And I'm going, no, I didn't say that at all. Conversation for another time. Test everything, hold fast what is good. So one of the kind of ways or one of the characteristics of a prophetic word or prophecy is going to be that it is good. How, how do you define good? Be careful. Because Paul will say, stay away from or abstain from every form of evil. Can a deceitful word a wrong teaching lead me into a form of evil? For sure. For sure. There are all kinds of false teachings in the Christian world that actually promote sin. And they encourage a life of sin. And they move people into darkness. So I think part of testing prophecy and testing in a moment, you're going, hmm, is God really speaking to me? Is this really the Spirit of God moving me into something? Part of the process of testing that is that you have already been, up to that point, clinging to what is good and staying away from what is evil. Which doesn't mean, oh no, like, if I found myself not doing that, then there's no way God's speaking in this moment, or there's no way I can discern through it. It just means, I think, it's easier to recognize the voice of God and it's more likely the voice of God when you've already been walking in the ways of God. And don't take that too far. And I'm not making that like a blanket statement. What I'm saying is the more familiar I become with the ways of God and the more consistently I walk in the path of light, the easier it becomes for me to recognize the voice of God. So this is not just head knowledge, intellectual assessment. This is... Go and live life with your father. Don't just become familiar with his voice in a reading your Bible kind of capacity where it's like, I have so much understanding. Go and live it out. One of the best ways to become more familiar or intimate with God is by doing what he says. By partnering with him. By going where he's going. By doing what he's doing in the earth. Speaking of false prophets, while we're on the subject, 2 Peter chapter 2 also tells us this, okay? False prophets also arose among the people. 
just as there will be false teachers among you. Okay, so deception has always been a part of, well, since the fall, deception has always been a part of our broken world. But deception and falsehood takes on different forms uh, at different times. Sometimes, like in the Old Testament, you don't have a teacher that's false. You have a false prophet all throughout the Old Testament. And then you have the Levites who are called to teach the Torah to the people. And some of them over time become pretty wicked and dark. And then they inadvertently become false teachers. Uh, I think this is partly why religious leaders and Pharisees of Jesus's day can be seen as false teachers because Jesus does say, do what they say and not what they do. So apparently their doing is not aligned with what they're saying and not even all that they're saying is completely true. Um, so I'm not going to go down that tangent. The point is there are false prophets who have always been prevalent, but in the form now in the church, there's another form they can take, which is false teachers who are actually shepherding or teaching or holding a position of an elder in a church. In other words, church leadership, no matter what he's saying, Hey, look at the old Testament. False prophets arose among the people, right? In the same way, there's going to be false teachers among you. The church, it says always been true. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So what I did for you is I highlighted uh, the characteristics of a false prophet here or a false teacher. I don't believe these are the only false, uh, only characteristics, but this is what Peter notes. Look at, he says, they'll secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's what they do. They bring in heresies, false teaching, error, blasphemy that destroys. Slowly over time, usually that's the kind of destruction they bring. And it's too late. Once you discover it and realize that they're in your midst, it's too late. Um, they deny the master who bought them. Conversation for another day. I'm not just putting off a ton of things. Just want to focus. Denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So, so far, a false teacher or a false prophet, okay, is um, characterized by heresy, destruction, and even secrecy. It's this like lurking in the shadows kind of thing. It's this, I hope they don't see what I really am. I hope I don't get exposed for what I really am. Um, it doesn't seem to be this accidental, like, I didn't know I was a fake. At least in the category of a false prophet and false teacher. And for those of you that are so quick to throw that label at people, let me show you why you should kind of hold on to that. Don't be so quick to throw that at people. Is because... At least in in Second Peter, false prophets and false teachers are communicated as secretly, like they're aware, they're intentionally doing so, they're secretly bringing in destructive heresy. So false teaching, uh, destruction, heresy, and secrecy—they're aware of what they're doing. It's not an accident. They're not like, "Dang it, I'm a false prophet. <laughs> Had no idea." They knew. They know. And they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And they're bringing people into that same destruction with them. And many will follow their sensuality. Oh, interesting. 
sensuality seems to be another characteristic of these false teachers and false prophets. And again, I'm not limiting a false prophet to these things. I'm not. I'm just giving you, I think, a clearer uh, metric, a better way to recognize, right? Because there are some of you who are like, I'll never call someone a false teacher or a false prophet. That is up to God. And then there are some of you that are like, I'll call anyone that disagrees with me a false prophet, a reprobate, you know, antichrist. And it's like, well, maybe there's middle ground. Maybe there's time to expose people rightly and justly, lovingly, right, truthfully. And it doesn't have to be like every single time you see someone that disagrees with you. Maybe not everyone that disagrees with you is an antichrist. How about that? Many will follow sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. So, another characteristic of false prophets or false teachers is that they leave a trail of blasphemy behind them. Meaning, they leave a trail of God's name as dragged through the ground. They're reviling the name of God. They're, they're smearing his character and his reputation in the mud. Not only that, but the people who follow behind them are also leaving a trail of blasphemy and reviling. I mean, I mean, behind false prophets and false teachers, you have people following them who don't have a high regard for the holiness and the, and the character of God. Let's just, let's just put it as frankly as we can. The way of truth is blasphemed, not just by them, right? But because of them, because of them. This sounds like the religious leaders and teachers, Jesus accuses them of saying, he goes, hey, you guys like making disciples, right? Yeah, you guys make twice the child of hell that you are out of the people you're leading. Go tell that to your pastor. Don't, I'm actually, don't do that. But the point is, that's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing. As he's going around exposing church leaders for the fakes they've always been, and he's calling them, look, you guys make disciples, huh? You guys think you're so good at that and you're so holy. You're making twice a child of hell as yourself out of them. So not only are you blaspheming, reviling the name of God with your life, you're bringing people into that and you're leaving a trail of it behind you. And this is kind of what Israel ends up doing in the Old Testament. God and his reputation is blasphemed because of their evil, idolatry, and wickedness, and sexual immorality, and rebellion, the, the ways of God should have been presented to the pagan nations by Israel. Israel should have demonstrated the character of God to the world. They didn't. And so therefore, the surrounding nations get a wrong picture of who the God of Israel really is. And now God, in their mind, has a very garbage reputation because of Israel, because of the people who represent him. That's what's happening here, is the way of truth is blasphemed. The lifestyle of a believer, the reputation of God, the gospel itself, all those different things. So I'm just trying to give you a flavor for what are like a... <laughs> don't do that, Christina. Don't, don't do that. Uh, sorry, I was looking at TikTok. We have some characteristics of false prophets and false teachers. They secretly bring in heresy. They know what they're doing. It's intentional. They're trying to ruin, destroy, corrupt. They're their, their lives are marked by sensuality, which means the people who are following them are ending up in sensuality as well. 
because these preachers and prophets and teachers are encouraging sensuality. They're blaspheming the name and the way of God. And in their greed, they exploit people with their false words. Uh-huh. They know what they're doing. They're greedy for what? Not just money. Sensuality implies some kind of sexual perversion, right? Or at least some lustful passion, at least. So I would say some of the markers of these false prophets is greed for gain, self-profit, building their own empire, sexual pleasure, money, all the different worldly things you can think of that you're like, I should stay away from those. These people are greedy for it. They're not trying to avoid it. They're not fighting the temptation to give into those things. They're greedy and they're willing to exploit you to have more sinful pleasures for themselves. And they'll use false words to do it. They'll lie to you. They'll lie to you to get what they want, not to give you what you need. You're just a pawn in their game. If this doesn't speak to so many mega churches on the planet, I'm not saying every mega church. I'm saying so many, like pastors with big platforms, lots of mega church, you know, congregations that are marked by this. And you wonder, like, where does it start? To be honest, it starts at the highest level of leadership. That's where it starts. If the leadership is marked by sensuality and they bring in destructive heresy and they deny the master who bought them and they're blaspheming the truth and the gospel and they're greedy for money and sexual pleasure and gain and profit and they're willing to exploit you with false words and you're willing to sit there and listen to it every Sunday, it starts with the leadership. It does. So before you go around slapping the false prophet label on everyone you think disagrees with you, or slapping the false teacher label on anyone that you see say something just micro wrong, you should really think through this. Hmm, the person that I'm actually like, um, the person that I'm actually evaluating, is their life and their teaching marked by destruction, sensuality, blaspheming? Do they seem to be greedy? For like the things of the world. I'm trying to protect you from sitting under, unknowingly sitting under garbage, false teaching and false prophecy and giving your money to that and giving your energy to that and giving your life to that. All the while, you're not being trained up in the truth. You're not being going deeper in the gospel. You're not being taught the love of God. It's every Sunday the preacher gets up and goes, hmm. What can I say to get the people to like me so that I get more money or more sexual pleasure or more influence or more of a platform? If you're sitting under that kind of teaching and that kind of leadership, I, you need to move out of that or do something to change that community. But that ain't for everyone. That ain't for everyone. Some of you are under that. Like you, you legitimately... Your leadership and the teachers and the prophets you really look to, it doesn't even bother you that their lives and their teaching are marked by these things. It's not even a concern to you. Possibly because you also have the same spirit as them. I'm not saying this to everyone. I'm saying this to a specific group of people. 
that some of you are interested in worldly gain only. And you only care about self-profit. Not interested in the gospel. Not interested in loving God. Not interested in holiness. Not interested in the kingdom. You're interested in what can God get from me and do for me? What can I gain in this world? I just had to say that because I'm not going to put all the emphasis on. Look at the leadership. I'm going to say, look, there are people, even in this chat right now, who you just want. You've already decided what you want to hear. And so you go and seek out certain pastors or teachers or prophets or YouTube channels that just confirm your bias and confirm your presuppositions and keep you locked in your own echo chamber so that you never learn anything new because you're afraid to and you do, you're, not, you're not willing to be wrong. And so you sit under teaching that encourages sin, that encourages your life of sinful pleasure and going after worldly things. And you ain't willing to change. This isn't just a problem with the shepherds. This is a problem with the sheep. You understand that? That's what I'm trying to get you to understand. So, so when John says, look, test the spirits. Well, hopefully some of you have a better, more accurate way of actually evaluating what people are saying. Now, the spirit they're operating in, right? And like Sylvia says, I have to say, I follow Jesus. That's so good. Never follow just one man. Never follow just one group of people. Never follow just one congregation or branch of theology or denomination or Southern Baptist. Don't ever give yourself over to any man-made anything or anything that is sourced in people. People will fail you. I will fail you. I'll get something wrong. I have. And I've had to unlearn things and I've had to relearn things and I've had to kind of tweak things to learn better. Don't ever give yourself to anyone except Jesus. But don't go, well, he did say to only give myself to Jesus. Therefore, I don't need any teacher or preacher. Well, hold on. Hold on. Not what I said. I said don't look to one man except Jesus. So many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. By what? How do I recognize, besides what we've already looked at, how do I recognize on a daily basis... When the Spirit of God is speaking to me, specifically in this context, it's through a person that presents themselves as a prophet or a teacher or a preacher. How do you recognize, hey, what that pastor just said, that was by the Spirit of God. How do you know the Spirit of God? Well, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the in the flesh is from God. You feel that? I know some of you just clicked. I know you just got it. You went, oh, oh man. One of the most telling signs of the spirit of error is that they, or it, that worldview ideology spirit has a wrong confession about Jesus. The spirit of truth will actually make a pure, biblical, truthful confession about Jesus. So I, I'm telling you, like, you can get to the bottom of things real fast if you just use Jesus' methodology. 
one of the most important questions Jesus ever asked his, his disciples was this. Hey, who do you say that I am? You know what Peter says? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh, the only true living Messiah that's come to save humanity. You're the only one. You came from God. You're one of us. You're the one that's been prophesied. And you're the only way into the, into the Father, into the kingdom of God. Now, of course, wrapped up in that statement, Peter probably didn't understand every dimension of that. But he made a proper confession. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. That's not the only marker, by the way. Like if I'm a, if I'm a, a teacher of God's word and, and you're going, hey, I really need to know if you're like of the spirit of God. Hey, did Jesus come in the flesh? And I'm like, yeah. You're like, oh, whew, good. Now I know you're from God. That's not the only marker. Every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the way John is consistently using the word spirit seems to be uh, the not just a way of seeing the world and processing through the world, but specifically a spirit in this context is more about how do you see Jesus? What is the lens through which you see Jesus? Is he Messiah? Is he God in the flesh? Is he the eternal word emanating from the Father? Is he just a man? Did he fake? Is that Who do you say he is? That seems to be mostly what this word spirit is about. Everyone is operating by a certain set of values that are sourced in their particular view or of God uh, or Jesus. And so when it comes to, hey, how do I know I should listen to someone? How do I know I should keep tuning into that YouTube channel? How do I know I should keep going back to that ministry? How do I know that prophetic word they said was for me is really from God? Well, what's their confession of Christ? Who do they say he is? Well, they said he came in the flesh. Okay, that's a good step. That's, that's, that's one step, but it's a step. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that denies Jesus came in the flesh, right? Which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. He'll get into... Um, okay. My goal is to finish chapter 4 today. We're three verses in. Let's make some progress. John is also going to note, it's not just about that he came in the flesh. It's about he came from the Father. Which if you're admitting that, you're agreeing with the Old Testament and the Old Testament category of one who is God, but alongside and distinct from God, which isn't polytheism. It's just the truthfulness of God's nature is that there is one all throughout the Old Testament and even into the new. There is one who is alongside God, but distinct from God whether he's the, the messenger angel of the Lord in particular circumstances, whether he's the word of God personified in the Old Testament when he appears to, to um, uh, Samuel or he appears to Abraham, whether he's the uh, a Christophany that we see appearing to Abraham and Gideon and Samson's parents. There is one in the Old Testament. And you can go and watch my four-hour video <laughs> on 55 reasons why the Bible teaches that Jesus is God in the flesh. Not the Father, not the Spirit, but the eternal word emanating from the Father, the Son. You can go watch that. 
So that's not up for debate right now. The point is, do you confess that Jesus came from God as the eternal word emanating from the Father? Meaning, if you say that, if you say that, then you are saying Jesus is in fact divinity. He is God in the flesh. He has divine essence. If you agree with that, you're two steps forward. Good job. Those are two filters that are necessary to really, really determine whether or not someone is speaking from the Spirit of God. That should be like your ultimate. Like if you go to a new church, your biggest concern should be what do they say the gospel is and who do they say Jesus is. If you get either of those wrong, okay, inevitably everything that flows from that is going to be distorted as well. If I'm building a church or a, a building or a people or a community on a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of the gospel, you're going to get a lot of issues with that. So go right to the core when you're evaluating or, or, or discerning through pastors and teachers and prophets and go, look, listen, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to like cause problems. What do you say the gospel is? Like sit down with the pastor. Sit down with the elder board if you can. Sit down with one of the shepherds. Sit down with the whoever the prophet is and who's like running the ministry. Sit down with them, the church leaders, and go, what is the gospel and who do you say Jesus is? The two main things they should get right about Jesus is he came from God. He's God in the flesh, right? And he is absolutely one of us. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a phantom. He didn't fake the human nature. He literally binded himself to human uh, the human nature. And he became one of us. Okay? So, let's go on. The spirit of Antichrist denies, like, aggressively. Think of Islam. Think of Mormonism. Think of Jehovah's Witnesses. And if, I, if you're in any of those camps, this is not a judgment against you, but your view of Jesus disagrees with the historical, biblical uh, view of, of who Jesus actually is. There's a disagreement there. That's all. So they have a wrong view of Jesus. They're operating in, according to 1 John, the spirit of Antichrist. If they deny Jesus came in the flesh, if they deny that he's really God in the flesh, um, but that's not all. Okay, there are other characteristics. John says, look, you heard it was coming and now is in the world already. Like, by the way, spirit of Antichrist is just that way of thinking, that framework, that philosophy, that ideology, that worldview, however you say it, that is opposed to God and his son. Little children, verse four, you are from God. I love that. I love that. Little children, you are from God. Those who deny Jesus, they're not from God, right? They're false prophets or they're false sheep. Yeesh. But we are from God. Those who have a right confession of Jesus believe the gospel, right? And have overcome them. Whoa. Hold on. Back it up. You're telling me the spirit of Antichrist, the world, and false prophets are something to overcome? Yes. Not overcome in a way where you are above them and superior and like, take that, sucker. But where you are not being dragged down by their deception. You're rising above it. And you're operating in the truth. And you're submitting to the ways of God rather than the ways of the world. The ways of the spirit of Antichrist. 
or the ways of um, those who are false prophets in leading you into deception. You rise above whatever deception they're promoting. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. For he who is in you, who's that? Well, if you read John 13, 14, and 15, Jesus will say, hey, I'm going to send the Spirit to live in you. And also, me and my Father will make our home in you as well. So he, being God, who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. Who is the he that is in the world? It seems to be mainly the false prophets. Or, if you're going to personify the spirit they're operating from, sure. Let's make the spirit of Antichrist or the world system at large a he. Either way, the he is that individual that is operating according to the ways of the serpent. And you go, ways of the serpent, read Genesis 3. You have the seed of the serpent who's going to be at odds with the seed of the woman all throughout human history. And Jesus is the culmination of that. He is the true seed of the woman, the promised Messiah. So we are from God, right? I love that us being children of God and us being from God plays into our victory over deception. Do you see that? Like who I am because of Christ and who I come from, my father, that actually has a role and plays a factor in my ability to overcome deception. Because he says, for he who is in you. So not only are you from God, but you're actually in God. God is in you. Jesus talks about this. How we'll be in him and he's in the Father and, and we're in both. It's, okay, either way, we're not just from God. We're immersed into a relationship with God. So because of that, We've overcome the world system that tries to drag us into destruction and heresy and death and, and deception because the one who is in us is greater than he who is kind of, think of Ephesians chapter 2. When it talks about the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, um, I'll take you there just to give you like a, a clear idea of, of what I mean. There is a prince of the power of the air. There is a spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Right there, Ephesians 2.2. 2. That spirit we've overcome, not on our own, but by the God who has given us victory. He invites us into his victory over them. So they are from the world, false prophets, false teachers. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Now, this is key. This is why those who are sucked into the world system and want nothing to do with truth, this is why they don't hear what we're saying when we preach the gospel. They don't get it. They don't understand or perceive or they don't value or love at all anything we're saying. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now, John is speaking as an apostle. So John, as a biblical author, as someone who is personally sent by Jesus to write down divine authoritative scripture as someone who is taught personally by Jesus. John is one of the 12 apostles who is from personally sent by Jesus to go and teach the world about him and his gospel and his kingdom. So John is saying, whoever really knows God listens to us 
being the apostolic authority. In John 13, 20, is what Jesus says in the upper room. He goes, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send. And he's talking about the, the apostles there, mainly. Okay, we are sent from God too to share the gospel, but they're sent in a unique apostolic kind of way. The unique 12 to lay the foundation of the church. So Jesus says, look, whoever receives the one I send, apostles, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So to receive the teaching and the eyewitness testimony of the apostles is to receive Jesus and his testimony and to receive the father who commissioned the son and who validates the son. This is how apostolic authority works is whatever the authority can be traced back to ultimately. That's the, that's the one you're receiving when a king sends a delegate. Um, I don't know. And then the, the, another kingdom receives that delegate. Um, is that the right word? <laughs> delegate? It'd be silly if I wasn't using the right word. Yeah, a person sent or authorized to represent others. A delegate. Yes. Vocab class for the win. Okay, if a king sends a delegate and another kingdom receives that delegate, it's as if they're receiving the king and his kingdom itself. You're receiving the one whom that delegate represents. The same with the apostolic authority. So this goes back to how do we discern through um, false prophets? In other words, how do, we, how do I know error and truth? Well, is what they're saying consistent with what the apostles said? In other words, the New Testament. Is what they're saying in the name of God, like your pastor, your favorite shepherd or teacher, your favorite YouTube Christian YouTuber, is what they're saying consistent with the apostolic uh, eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. Very simply, does it match up with the Bible? Whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. So here's how you recognize false prophets. Error. They deny the apostolic authority and eyewitness testimony. And ultimately, like the, 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 the intended meaning behind the, the gospel and the New Testament. They deny that. They're not submitted to the authority of God. They're not submitted to the authority of his apostles, whom he gave the authority. They're operating in their own kind of authority. This is the spirit of Antichrist operating outside the authority of God, trying to establish righteousness on their own terms, trying to establish their own gospel, trying to create their own version of what Jesus brings. And ultimately, they don't listen to apostolic authority or the Bible. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay. Ultimately, I think part of false prophets and false teachers and and false, uh, you name it, is that they don't hold themselves accountable to another. In other words, they're wild. They're kind of like a like an outlaw, just on their own terms, doing whatever they want in the name of God, saying that they're expanding his kingdom, and they don't at all submit to his authority. I think part of the spirit of Antichrist is this rejection of authority, is this refusal to come under the authoritative word of God. I think that's part of it. Beloved, let us love one another. And you're like, whoa, is this the same passage? You're talking about the spirit of the Antichrist, spirit of the world. You're talking about the Holy Spirit and recognizing error from truth. You just jump right into love. Well, 
One of the defining markers of a Christian is going to be what? Love. So a false prophet, a false teacher who is not from God is not going to be operating in love for one another. So there you go. <laughs> they Decepticons. There you, there you go. There's one of the other ways to recognize uh, the spirit of truth from the spirit of error or the spirit of God from the spirit of Antichrist is the lifestyle of the person. Like, how does your pastor live? How does your favorite YouTuber live, Christian YouTuber? How does your, the prophet that you tune in every Monday night at 5 p.m.? What's their lifestyle like? Are they mar marked by genuine love for people? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Now, here's where we transition into what I believe is the best part of this chapter. I'm all for, like, you know, discerning through false prophets and false prophecies and false teachers. That's great. But I'm more interested in love. And this is why I address you sin-seeking missiles and heresy-hunting monsters out there who have created ministries out of minuscule mistakes. Is that you've neglected the weightier things. In the name of going and starting your own thing like some Robin Hood. Like you're like you're a part of your own system and going, oh, God's pleased with this, really? He's honored by you creating an entire ministry and YouTube channel out of evaluating the minuscule errors of pastors and calling out the smallest mistakes and blowing them out of proportion and, and using thumbnails and titles that are like demeaning and degrading. That honors God. Well, I'm preserving the truth, man. You don't even know what it's like. We've got to fight against error. Yeah, but you're ignoring what God cares about, which is love. And love is going to be consistent with truth. But if you don't focus on loving God and loving people, and instead you shift to a secondary issue, which is like exposing the mistakes of pastors and preachers, if that's what you do, and you're neglecting love, I mean, you tell me if you're really walking with Jesus. Like, honestly, when, when, I, when I put it like that, it should make you think. Let us love one another. He doesn't say let us heresy hunt. He doesn't say let us seek for sin. Like little missiles just ready to destroy anything that looks inherently like, hey, that pastor slipped up. He, it didn't say him. It said God in that passage. What is he doing? There's no love in that person, man. Let us love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So this is the, one of the fundamental differences between those who are of God and those who are not, is love marks their life. If you're born of God and you know God, who is love, that's what he's going to say right here in verse 8, God is love, then you would expect like a child of God to have the love of their father. You know what I mean? If, if that is what makes if that is one of the main things God defines himself as, this isn't a restrictive statement. God's not saying, I am only love. Love is God. It's not what he's saying. But he is saying, he is literally taking this concept of love that we understand, and he's saying, that's me. And there's not a lot of things God will define himself as. Like, there are characteristics. Well, let me back that up. God is love. God is light. Uh, God is truth, I believe. Like he identifies himself in substance as those things. 
If you're looking at God, you're looking at the essence of truth and love and light and life and life. And love is one of those things. God will say, you know what? That's me. If you're seeing love, it came from me. And if you're looking at me, you're looking at perfect love. So if you're going to belong to God and come from him and you have no love because you're too busy like creating thumbnails that clickbait people into watching you expose Matt Chandler or someone, then maybe, maybe like you really don't know God the way you think. Because wouldn't there be love? And isn't love charitable? Isn't love understanding and compassionate and, and patient? Isn't love generous? Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. If love is not present in a ministry, I don't know if it's actual biblical ministry anymore. You can call it a ministry. You can call it a YouTube channel that's like a, uh, I don't know, an extension of your church. You can call it that. If it lacks love, I don't think it's anything useful to God anymore. Well, I'm exposing the truth or I'm exposing the, the falsehood and the lies. Sweet. Is there love in your heart for that person? If there was, you'd be a little more charitable, charitable, you know, understanding, kind, uh, generous. You'd care for them. God is love. Now, don't get that backwards. Love is not God. We don't worship a concept. But the entirety and the source and the substance of love is God himself. So in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. If you're wondering what love looks like because you weren't shown love by your parents and you were abused over and over in certain relationships and you've never known what love really is, you've only seen dimensions of it, I'm telling you right now, God has shown love to us. Love has been revealed to humanity. It's been manifested among us. The love of God wrapped up in his son was manifested to humanity. And here's how God loves. He sends his son. Here's how Jesus loves. He obeys the father and he comes and lays his life down willingly. And he sends his son into the world. This world system that is plagued by darkness and sin and evil. He sent his son into that. To go and conquer all the stuff you and I never could. We never could conquer sin, death, the devil on our own. Jesus did it for us. That's love. So that we might live through him. So love promotes life. Love leads people into abundant life. When you're loving someone, it's going to have the effect that God's love had on us. God's love leads us into abundant life. God's love, love pulls us into the fullest sense of life and abundance and, and satisfaction. That's what God's love does. Is He's drawing us into the ideal. Namely, to Himself. To Himself. So if you're going to love people effectively and biblically, it's going to move them towards Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you can effectively move anyone towards Jesus on your own, but I am saying God will use your act of love to move people towards Christ. And it will promote life. My love should lead people 
into more life, like a greater life, like the life God has for them, found in Christ, found in his word. This is why love will always be aligned with truth and holiness and righteousness. So in this is love. In this is love. In what? Not that we have loved God. <laughs> That's not impressive. Like, it's expected. God is worthy of our love. That's not impressive. What's impressive is that God loved us. That God sent his son for us. That Jesus laid down his life for us. That he lived the perfect life and stayed on that cross and hung there till it was finished and paid our debt for us. And you go, why is that so impressive? Because you and I are not worthy and deserving of the love God has shown us. He loved us in spite of us, not because of us. God doesn't look at anything we bring to the table and go, wow, that's worthy of my love. There's nothing about me. I'm made in the image of God for sure. That doesn't demand the love of God. I don't deserve to be loved by him. Not only does God love, he loves to the greatest extent. He loves to the highest level. That's the love of God. That's love. So if, if you've been confused about love your whole life because you haven't found love and, and you're looking for it in all the wrong places and you define it wrongly and you, your parents didn't give it to you and your boyfriend didn't give it to you, look at God. Look at the gospel. Look at the scriptures. You'll find the most satisfying, life-giving love on the planet. You'll never find anything better than the love God has shown us and gives us freely. So, this is love. That He loved us. That He sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment in full or the appeasement of wrath for our sin. For our sin. He didn't arbitrarily send Jesus for no reason. He sent Jesus for our darkness, for our evil. That's the love of God. That's the love that drives a believer. That's the love that will manifest, not just in our world through Christ, but in our life. That's the love that distinguishes truth from error. That's the love that distinguishes us from the world. And ultimately, that's the love that false prophets and false teachers don't have. So you can easily recognize them by their life. Like Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, you'll know them by their fruits. Beloved, if God so loved us, like we also ought to love one another. It's reasonable. That makes sense. That's a very logical thing to do. Hmm. God loved me. To the greatest extent. When I didn't deserve it. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Despite my evil, he still chose to love me. Therefore, the only reasonable response is that I would love my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And lay down my life for them. And promote life and abundance for them. 
with my love for them. That's what love will do. Verse 12 says, look, no one has ever seen God. And you go, why, why does John bring that in? What does this statement have to do with love? Loving one another. Weirdly enough, this sounds a lot like what Jesus says in John 17. I think it's like <clears throat> five. I think it's this one. Right here. Jesus says, I made known to them your name, which is the character of the Father, and I will continue to make it known. So that the love with which you've loved me, Jesus is praying to the Father. He's going, Father, the love you had for me, so that it can be in them, his disciples, and I in them. And apparently, when this right here, or this right here, verse 23. He prays, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, which assumes love. So that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And you go, that doesn't sound like no one has ever seen God. Well, John actually opens his gospel like this. John opens his gospel. Same author of 1 John. right? This is the same author, same apostle. But this is his account of Jesus. He says in the opening chapter of his, his gospel, no one has ever seen God. And then everyone goes, yes, that is correct. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And you go, oh my gosh, that's what Jesus said to, to Philip and Thomas and Nathaniel in the upper room, those knuckleheads. And they're like, show us the Father. And he's like, guys, guys, are you kidding me? You've been with me for three and a half years. You have seen the Father. He's in me and I in Him. When you look at me, you see the Father. I'm revealing the character of God to you as God in the flesh. You're looking at Him. I'm giving you a perfect revelation of the Father, not just in His life, but mainly, 1 John wants to connect this statement to the concept of love. He's going to say, I think what John is mainly saying is that in the love of Jesus, laying down His life, that act of love gives a very clear, accurate picture of the God of, of creation. It's in that act of love. So no one has ever seen God. That's true. Jesus says he has them. You know, Jesus says he's been with the Father. He's heard from the Father. He's alongside the Father. As the word of God emanating from the Father. Yeah, he was at the Father's side. And John calls him the only God who reveals God. And you're like, what the? He has made him known. So that's not the only time um, John will note, no one's ever seen God. I, I just want you to see how consistent this is throughout his gospel. John 5.37, this is what Jesus says to the unbelieving crowds. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. You've never seen the God that I'm coming to represent. You've never seen the God that really you have rejected and his ways and his character and you're not, whole, you're not really honoring him. You've never seen his form. Why does Jesus say that? Well, 
Better question is, why does he say it again in chapter 6? He says it again. Not that anyone has seen the Father. It's a theme. you got to pay attention to it in John's Gospel. No one has ever seen the Father, except he who is from God. That's Jesus, the eternal Word. So how are you from God and distinct from God, yet God at the same time? You go figure that out. He has seen the Father. That's why he can reveal the Father. Hmm? And then John 14. Right? Thomas goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, look, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. And you go, hold on. John, John 1 opens with, no one has ever seen God. But the only God at the Father's side has revealed him to us. Then you go to John 5, and Jesus tells the crowds, none of you have ever seen God. Then John 6, you guys have never seen God, but I've seen the Father. Then you go to John 14. And Jesus goes, look, if you knew me, you would know you've seen the Father. Do you see what he's doing? Let me take you to 1 John 4.20. Which is ultimately we're gonna, where we're going to land this plane. It's a two-hour sermon. This is insane. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, this is First John, not the Gospel of John. He who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. It seems to be Anytime there's a statement about not seeing God or seeing God, it's connected to love. It's connected to love. Hmm. So when we go up to verse uh, 12, no one has ever seen God. That's true. But if we love one another, God abides in us. This is not saying, if you love each other good enough, then God will come and dwell in you. It's that your love for one another is proof and evidence of the fact God abides in us. This is more a proof statement. And his love is perfected in us. So what does this have to do about people not seeing God? Well, Jesus came to reveal the Father perfectly. And I think the culminating revelation of the Father was on the cross, laying down his life. Perfect love has no man than this. No man has ever laid down his life, at least something along those lines. Let me look up the actual verse. No greater love has anyone than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. John fifteen thirteen. So, John is really wanting us to understand there's a profound connection between the love of God and the revelation of God and seeing God in a spiritual capacity. Meaning, we don't physically see God with our eyes in a material, visible way. But when the church is engaging in love, you are actually seeing a dimension of God visibly, physically in front of you, right? which enables you to spiritually see God even clearer in the eyes of your heart. So love becomes 
a, I don't want to get all new agey and over spiritual with this, but our love for each other becomes a platform for God to step out on and reveal himself. So that when the world looks at our love for each other and the love that's been perfected in us, right? They're seeing, whether they want to admit it or not, they're seeing God among his people through their love. And this is why love is so important. It's literally one of the main God-ordained ways that he chooses to reveal himself to the lost world through the love of his people. So guess what? You eliminate love, you take away the revelation of the Father to both the world and the church, which doesn't mean God can't reveal himself in any ways, but it seems to be one of the main ways, like even more than signs and wonders, is the love, the supernatural, divine, self-giving love of his people, which is sourced in God and becomes a witness to God. When you see the kind of love the church is supposed to have that Jesus has for them, when you see that, you're seeing a love that is foreign to this world. It does not compute. It's not compatible with this world system. It's something the world does not have. That kind of self-giving, divine, supernatural love. It's not something they have. Because it's sourced in God and it comes from Him and He makes it possible. So when that happens among us, there's your, there's your testimony. There's your witness to the God of creation. There He is. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Because He's given us of His Spirit. Now this is where John brings back in the dimension of the Spirit, right? Remember, he talked about the Spirit up here a lot. The spirit of the world, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of God, the, the spirit of error, the spirit of truth. Right? So ultimately you have two spirits. The spirit of God, truth, and, you know, I guess holiness. And then the spirit of error, spirit of Antichrist, spirit of the world. Those are your two, two spirits you could operate in. Now, John is going to connect our love for each other boop, to the spirit of God inside of us. We know that we abide in him. Here's how you know you're saved. Here's how you know you're forgiven. Here's how you know you truly belong to God. Because he's given us of his spirit. So the presence of God's spirit in my life, his, his activity in my life, is proof that I've really come to abide in Jesus. It, it's proof that I'm a child of God. And we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John's speaking from personal experience. He's speaking from personal experience. He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration reveal his glory. He was there at the, I think he was there at the baptism. Maybe not. Jesus' baptism? I think he was. Um, I mean, he's seen the moments of Jesus pulling back the veil of his flesh a little bit to reveal his glory. John has seen. And now he's a first-hand eyewitness to the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's testifying. He's testifying. It's like he's in a courtroom. And he's going, we've seen. We've walked with him. We've touched him. We've heard him. We've eat, we ate with him. 
We lived with him. We slept where he slept. Um, Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So here's another one of those distinguishing markers between truth and error is that those who are filled with the Spirit have a right confession about Jesus, that he's the Son of God. Go read John's Gospel. There's like, I don't know, at least five times I can probably think of where Jesus being called the Son of God is equated with him being God in the flesh. So in other words, for Jesus to be the Son of God is not just messianic in nature. It doesn't just mean he's the Christ, the anointed one, the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. It means that he is God among his people. He's God in the flesh. And if you confess that Jesus is who he says he is, very clearly, God among his people, well, God abides in you, and you abide in God. It's proof. Your confession about Jesus is quite telling. So we've come to know and to believe the love God has for us. Now that's interesting to me. He didn't say we've come to know and believe the gospel. And it, it's not like he's not saying that, but he doesn't explicitly state that. Within this idea, when he says, look, we've come to, as the apostles, we've come to believe the love God has for us. Remember, Jesus is love. Yeah? Jesus is love personified. You take love, put arms and legs on him, perfect revelation of love, Jesus. So, John is saying, yes, we've come to believe the Son. We've come to believe the Gospel. But he communicates the Gospel in this dimension. He says, the, the Gospel message that brings salva- salvation, it's the message of God's love. It's the terms of peace. God is bringing the terms of peace to the world. And he's saying, I am the king of the universe and I'm coming to reclaim my world. And I'm bringing you the terms of peace. If you would like to be in my family, here's the terms of peace. Believe in the son, his life, death, resurrection pays for your sin. He's the high priest. Trust in him alone for salvation. But in that message is also a revelation of God's love. So if you are preaching the gospel and calling it the gospel, but there's no love being communicated, it doesn't mean what you're saying isn't true. It just means the gospel you're proclaiming is incomplete. Because the love of God in his son, laying down his life, Jesus, that's the central focus of the gospel. So you pull love out of it, you've robbed it of what it needs to be. You've robbed people of what they really need. They need to hear the love of God in the midst of their own brokenness and sinfulness. They need to know there's terms of peace that the king brings in his son who is peace, in his son who is love, who is truth. And so John says, we've come to know and believe the love God has for us. When did that happen? Like you really wonder, when did John finally get so convinced that he went, God loves us. When did that happen? Was it when he was watching Jesus hang there on the cross and Jesus looks down at John and says, Hey, behold my mother, take care of her. While John's sitting there watching him breathe his last, while John's sitting there watch him die, watching him die and blood and water pour out of his side after he's stabbed in the side with a spear. When did it happen? At the resurrection, when he ran to the tomb and looked in, didn't see Jesus there, going, what the heck? <clears throat> when did it happen? 
When Jesus is sitting down with them at the Sea of Galilee, eating fish in his resurrected body, when did John finally get it and go, I believe the love God has for us? When did that happen? I don't know. But I do know that he believes the testimony of Jesus and the work of Jesus as being the perfect revelation of God for humanity. God is love. He already said it up here. God is love. What do you think he wants us to understand? I think he wants us to see that God is love. And therefore, consequently, whoever abides or is connected to love, abides in love, remains in love, well, they abide in God because God is love. So if love is in your life, like the love of God for his people, that's evidence that you abide in him and God abides in that person. By this is love perfected with us. Now this, this is where things get, for me, hit home a little more. By this is love perfected with us, not just in us, not just in us. He uses a different preposition, okay? Love is perfected with us. It seems to be like as the church. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Hmm. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, you go, what is he saying? Here's the layman's terms breakdown. Because we are like Jesus in this world, we have confidence for the day of judgment. And by that, by being like Jesus in this world, love is perfected with us. So confidence is connected here to God's love being perfected with us. And being like Jesus in the world relates to having confidence for the day of judgment and <clears throat> having God's love perfected with us. Do you see it? What is he specifically saying about us being like Jesus in the world? Well, if Jesus was the perfect revelation of love to humanity, he was the love of God and the word of God and the truth of God and the light of God, life of God with arms and legs. If that's who he is and he operated in perfect love, then when I am like him and I operate in the love of God for other people, that begins to breed in me an increased amount of confidence for the day of judgment. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that when you stand before God, he's going to ask you, how much did you love people? I don't think we're going to be measured and, and led into heaven based on how well did we love. We are going to be entering into the kingdom of God based on, did you believe in my son? That's it. Did you believe in the gospel? Part of believing is that the fruit of the Spirit <clears throat> will be produced in my life. That's part of what it means to believe, is that I will live like the gospel is true. I will live like my Savior. That includes love. So the fact that there's love in my life, or the love of God in my life for people, is a witness to the faith that I have. Jesus is my confidence. He's my reason for getting into the kingdom. 
He's the reason I have eternal life. He's the reason the Father's letting me into his family. He's the reason I have salvation and forgiveness. He's the reason I'm righteous. He's the reason for my boldness to approach the Father. He is everything. But how can I be confident that I truly have come to believe in the gospel? It's the presence of love in your life. Love being perfected with us. So, John's already made similar statements like this. As he is, so we are in the world. You know, something like that. In chapter 3, in verse 1, he said, See what kind of love the Father's given to us in his Son? We get to be called children of God. What the? That's crazy. And so we are. And so we are. This is key. We are what? Children of God. Why? Because of the love the Father has given to us in His Son to make us His children. And so we are, like Jesus is the only begotten true Son of God, He shares His Sonship with His people. So that now we believe in Him and we're adopted into the family of God because Jesus shares His Sonship and His identity as the Son of God. He shares that with His people. And he says, you can become a son or a daughter of God as well. And so we are. So we are. Go down to verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. Interesting. So another statement John makes about being as Jesus, as he is, so we are, is he, he brings purity into the equation. Purity of heart, purity of life, practicing righteousness, living holy to the Father. That becomes more witness to the faith that I have in the Son. This is not about I'm confident in my works. That's not what I'm saying. We're not confident in our works. We're confident in the work of Jesus. But how do I know I've truly come to believe in the work of Christ? Well, there's going to be evidence or fruit in my life. Love. Purity, righteousness, and First John two twenty nine. If you know that He is righteous, Jesus, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. In other words, here's one of those "as He is, so we are" statements. If He is righteous, then so are we, and we will practice righteousness since we've been born of Him. All throughout John's gospel and this letter of First John. And 2 John and 3 John, it's the identity of the believer as children of God. It's how my status and position in Christ influences my life, changes my life. So now we go back to, um, where was it? Verse 17, confidence for the day of judgment has to do with being like Jesus in the world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, I understand why pastors will go here, but I just don't understand why they don't go further. They'll stop and say, guys, message on fear. Let's not fear. God loves us. Thanks for coming on Sunday. See you next week. And that's like the bulk of their message is 1 John 4.18. God loves us, so we have no reason to fear. But John has a specific fear in mind, so let's go farther. What's the greatest thing you and I had to fear 
before Jesus. What is the greatest fear I had before I was saved and brought into the family of God? Well, I was, I technically should have been afraid of judgment and condemnation and separation from God and the punishment for sin. That was my greatest reason for fear. John has in mind that particular fear here. There is no fear in love. For those of you that, and I want to be sensitive how I say this. For those of you that are, you've been following Jesus for a while, you're a Christian, but you still have those thoughts, what if I don't get in? What if I'm a fake? What if the day that I die, I'm faced with the reality that I, I never belonged to God? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. For those of you that wake up most days terrified of hell, for those of you that, like the fear of hell keeps you awake at night and you, you, can't, you can't escape it and you just wonder, am I really going to get in? And you're, you're terrified of punishment. For those of you that are absolutely horrifically afraid of being separated from God for eternity. And you just, you're not sure if you're going to be punished or not. And you live every day afraid of hell. The fear of hell cripples you. If I've made my case and I've made my point, let's move on. This is for you. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Let me tell you right now. You and I don't love perfectly. So this can't be talking about my love because my love ain't perfect. This is talking about someone else's love that is actually perfect in nature. God's love is the only love I can think of biblically that is perfect in nature. There's no, there's no blemish. There's nothing you can improve about it. It's not lacking. And that perfect love casts out what? Fear. Fear of what? Well, fear has to do with punishment. Punishment for what? For sin. Whoever fears punishment, condemnation, has not been perfected in love. Now, oh, stop. This is where some of you will tune out. You'll, you'll turn off the stream and leave and don't. Listen. This is not saying that if you struggle with not being sure if you're going to be punished for sin or not, or not being sure if you're going to make it into the kingdom. If you struggle with that, then you're for sure not a believer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, let's move on and then we'll establish what he means there, okay? Remind me to come back to it so I don't forget. We love because he first loved us. So this is John bringing in God's love and touching it or connecting it to our love for people. You only love people because you have a good enough reason to do so. And it's called God's love for you. That is always going to be my reason and your reason to love people. When people don't give me a reason to love them, I always have a reason to love them in spite of what they're not doing or what they're not giving me. And it's called God's love for me. God's love for me is always reason enough to love people.
So my love and your love for God or for people is always going to be a response to his love for us. He first loved us. We didn't initiate this thing. I didn't ask God to love me. He chose to love me before I ever knew to ask for it. He chose to love me when none of us were worthy of it and before we ever could be worthy of it. He chose to love us despite everything we brought to the table, our sin, our evil, our death, all of our wickedness. Yes, we're image bearers of God. He first loved us. Now, my love is going to be a response to his love for me always. So when I'm loving people, it's not that I'm not thinking of them, but I am mainly thinking of the love God has for me, and I'm responding to that love by loving others. If anyone says, I love God, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. I didn't say it. He who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. Huh. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let's close this thing up for today. If you live a lifestyle and if your life is marked by zero love for people, and you claim to know God, and you claim to be a Christian, maybe you're just immature and you need to grow up and you're just a new believer. But John wants you to, to know that if your life, the rest of your life, is marked by zero love for people and God, you don't love God like you think. There is no way to love God while hating people. Now you can hate ideologies and you can hate deception and you can hate sin and you can hate evil and I do but when you live in perpetual hatred and you have no love for anyone you can't be loving God because the best most practical way to love him is by loving people made in his image so you can't be a let's just say like this there are lots of Christians who lone wolf this life and they're like me and God against the world I'll love him I don't need people they're annoying they bug me they, they poop everywhere. They just, I don't want to deal with them. Okay. If you live like that and think that's a real thing, you're very deceived. That's not a real thing. It's not possible to belong to God and be a child of God and have zero love for anyone else. It, it's just, this is not true. Because the love that God fills me with is going to be uh, directed towards people. I'm going to have his love if I truly belong to him. I will eventually see evidence of his love in my life for people. So I'm just saying like one of the greatest markers of a Christian is love. What does that have to do with not fearing punishment? Because the love of God has perfected us. Okay, Meaning, my last sip of water... Meaning, when you come into faith and you believe the gospel, the love of God perfects you, makes you righteous, makes you holy, makes you blameless, cleanses you of all sin. That's the grace and love of God being perfected in you. 
is that now you are perfected and you are righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus. Okay? Where was I going with that? So when God's love perfects you, you are now fitted for or capable of walking in his love for people. And then you will see love in your life as evidence of the fact you've been perfected by the love of God. But also there's this thing. The fearing punishment thing. What's going on there? Does it mean that if I fear hell and punishment that I'm absolutely not a believer? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. This, this kind of fearing thing seems to be more of a life rather than a moment. Meaning, the fear here seems to be lifelong and consistent rather than just like a moment of like, oh no, I, I got afraid again. Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of the same things. Why did Jesus become one of us? Well, so that through death or by dying, he might destroy, obliterate, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So who holds the power of death? Apparently the devil. In terms of like, however far, well, not for today. <laughs> the one who has the power of death is the devil. Jesus destroys him. And he delivers all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, what does Jesus deliver us from? It's right there. He delivers us from the fear of death. How? By overcoming and destroying the devil. How? By dealing with our sin entirely. So that since my debt is paid, I no longer have to fear the punishment and the consequence for my sin. Because Jesus took that on himself. And he took my exile, my spiritual death upon himself, so that I have nothing to fear anymore. He stripped the enemy of his power. He did. He rendered spiritual darkness powerless at the cross and at the resurrection. He crushed it. So now, if I belong to Jesus, I have no reason to fear punishment. Why? Because Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, it's a state of being. You're a child of God. If you believe. There is zero punishment for your sins. There's zero penalty. There's zero condemnation. There's none. So when you are fearing what Jesus has already handled, the debt of my sin, the death I deserve, the penalty and condemnation, when you're fearing that, there's two potential things going on. Right? Either you don't believe Jesus really paid your debt, or you could live free from fear, or, okay, or you're just a new believer, and you need to grow up into the love of God and realize how deeply He loves you, so that that love of God replaces the fear of hell in your heart. In other words, that there's there's the possibility that if someone fears punishment. That might be an indication they don't truly believe. Because what are you believing Jesus to do? What are you believing when you, when you hear the gospel and you go, I believe, what are you believing? You're believing that Jesus came down from heaven, lived the perfect life for us, 
met the law in our place, lived perfectly since none of us ever could. You're believing that he died on the cross to pay all of your debt and that in his flesh, sin was condemned instead of you. You're believing that he died your death, took your exile and your separation from the father. And after dying, he rose to life three days later. That's what you're believing. So if there's the presence of fear and you're like, I'm afraid of going to hell. I'm afraid of condemnation. I'm afraid that I'll be punished for my sin. Maybe, keyword, maybe you have not been perfected in the love of God and you don't truly take God at his word. Otherwise, you'd believe. And you go, he paid my debt. There's nothing for me to fear. He either paid it or he didn't. I either have reason to fear or I don't. But here's the other potential opportunity or option is maybe you are a Christian and that fear of hell is what made you aware of your sinfulness and it made you take your sinfulness seriously and you came to God and you repented and there's still some, some of that fear of punishment lingering in your life now that you're a Christian. So maybe you are a believer. And you just need to grow up in the love of God, know him better so that his love begins to remove any fear of hell or punishment in your heart. In other words, maybe the fear I have will be replaced over time with the love of God as I just pursue him. But the fear of hell wants to cripple you so that you don't move forward into the love of God. Because if you do, then the fear of punishment will lose its power over you. That fear of hell will lose its grip over you. And so if I were the enemy, I would keep Christians locked in this fear of hell so that they're crippled and they don't pursue God and they don't grow in the knowledge of his word and they don't know him because then they'll never get to know the love that replaces that fear. That would be a good tactic. And that's exactly what the enemy does. Is he cripples Christians with the fear of punishment that is done and doesn't exist anymore because condemnation is gone. But then he does the opposite to the unbeliever. He makes them believe there's no punishment for sin. So while the unbeliever should be terrified of hell and should come to God in terms of like, please forgive me. Instead, the believer's dealing with that. And while the believer should be free from the fear of punishment, right? You got the unbeliever walking around like there's nothing wrong. And so the enemy switches things up, right? He takes that fear of punishment and he puts it on us when it, that should be on the unbeliever. And he takes that confidence and, and fearlessness and boldness we should have. And he puts it on the unbeliever who is actually in grave danger, very grave danger. So maybe you fear punishment because you haven't been perfected in love and you're not a child of God yet. Or maybe you just need to grow up a little bit. No matter what, the solution is always going to be pursue a growing knowledge of God. Like if you're an, un if you're an unbeliever and you don't even know it, or if you're a, a new believer and you're still in the fear of hell, the solution is the same. Read your Bible, know God for yourself, invest into your relationship with him, pray, fast, Get around God's people. Do what you need to, to grow that relationship with God or to develop one with him if you don't have one. But no matter what, love 
is going to be the defining mark of a Christian. That's going to mark us. It's going to be the evidence to the world we belong to Jesus. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can't say, I love God, but I just hate people. Those are two contradictory statements because God loves people. And he especially loves those who belong to him. So if you don't love them, then you're, you're representing God wrongly. And you're not actually operating with the heart of God, which is love. Which is love. So, that is 1 John 4. Thank you guys for listening. If you guys don't know, you can go to abovereproachministry.com. Link is in the description below. The link is on TikTok, on my profile. And you'll find all our free resources. And I mean all of them. We have free devotional studies. We have free online Bible study courses. We have free Bible study sheets that I'm releasing once a month for each book. We have free Bible study workshops. We have online church on the Discord app. If you haven't already joined, get in there. The community's popping. It's dope. We pray. We, we're trying to fast each week together. Have communion tomorrow. Uh, we're in there in the voice chat encouraging one another. So if you're looking for a godly community um, that promotes growth and encourages your faith, where you can find other like-minded believers, join our online church. All these are linked in the description below. And so if you want to help us create all this free content to everyone around the world, um, you can. You can pray for us. You can join us. Uh, you can help. You can support us financially. Uh, when you give to this ministry, you're helping our mission. So the mission of Above Reproach Ministry is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So we're trying to make disciples and equip believers and resource the church and, and build up the body. And if you think that's an admirable mission... Um, you can support what we're doing. I have a wife and two kids. I am a husband and a father. I'm 30 years old. I know I look 12. You can give on our website through debit or credit card straight from a card. You can give on PayPal. You can give on Cash App. You can give on Venmo. You can give on a monthly basis through Patreon. And wait, for those of you that are interested in the mon monthly Patreon, there's some exclusive benefits you get. You get discounts on our church merch, Above Reproach Apparel. Uh, so you can represent Jesus on your body. Uh, when you sign up through Patreon, you also get, depending on the tier you sign up with, you get a free copy of my book, Fruitful, a free digital copy or a physical copy. Um, you also get access to my sermon notes, the, the, the notes that I use for these messages. Um, I put them out there and you can just download them and use them however you want. And so there's a bunch of perks to signing up um, through Patreon and supporting us monthly. But... That's pretty much it. All the free resources on our website, our online church. You can give. Uh, check out our YouTube channel if you're not already on it. And I think that's it. I think that's it, guys. Thanks for joining. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I'll see you later.